A warm welcome to First Move. I'm Dana Ashton. My colleague Julia Chatley just ahead on today's show. Windsor, welcome. U.S. President Joe Biden is in the U.K. for the start of his European trip, meeting with King Charles at Windsor Castle before heading to a NATO summit in Lithuania. Biden also telling CNN that it's too early, it's too soon to let Ukraine join NATO. We are live with the very latest. Plus, Moscow meeting the Kremlin saying that President Putin held talks with Wagner uh, leader Yevgeny Prigozhin five days after the aborted march on Moscow, a top Russian general surfacing for the first time as well uh, since the insurrection. And superpower reset. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen wrapping up 10 hours of high-level talks in Beijing. Uh, no major breakthroughs reported, though, but promises of more dialogue to come. On global markets, a cautious open on tap for U.S. stocks after last week's uh, across-the-board pullback. European markets in the green after a mixed Asian handover. Hang Seng and the Shanghai finishing the session with gains, but new signs of Chinese economic weakness. Producer prices falling at the fastest pace in more than eight years. Consumer prices coming in flat, raising fresh deflationary concerns. So much to get through this Monday. I want to begin, though, with uh, President Biden's trip to the UK. Joe Biden certainly looking to bolster the so-called special relationship between Britain and the United States. Right now, he is in Windsor meeting uh, King Charles uh, III for the first time since the royal coronation. There was a lot of pomp, a lot of ceremony as they took part in the inspection of the honor guard. As you see from these pictures, the pair are going to be discussing climate change, among other issues as well, but climate change being the main one. Earlier, the president met with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak at Downing Street to talk about Ukraine ahead of tomorrow's key NATO summit in Lithuania. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is stepping up his efforts to join the military alliance before the meeting. We are working with our partners. We are working on security guarantees. We are also working on helping our partners to make some conclusions for this upcoming NATO summit meeting. And we would like to have all the decisions to be made during the summit. In this case, it's obvious that I'll be there and I'll be doing whatever I can in order to, so to speak, expedite that solution, to have an agreement with our partners. I don't want to go to Vilnius for fun if the decision has been made beforehand. But an exclusive interview with CNN before his trip, President Biden said that Ukraine is not ready for NATO membership. I don't think there is unanimity in NATO about whether or not to bring Ukraine into the NATO family now, at this moment, in the middle of a war. And Nick Robertson joins us live now. So just in terms of President Biden meeting with Rishi Sunak, just walk us through how much division there is in terms of the timeline of Ukraine joining NATO, i.e. if there is a fast-track way for Ukraine to join NATO, and also the issue of cluster munitions uh, as well. Yeah, the issue of cluster munitions did come up. It was always going to come up because there was uh, 
they both have different views. Countries have taken different positions. The U.S. is not a signatory to the Convention on Cluster Munitions. And President Biden took that decision just before the weekend to send cluster munitions to Ukraine because they are very short of munitions they need, that are available to send. Uh, the U.K. and many other countries that are allied with the United States are signatories to that convention. It's a convention that says you can't produce or provide or, or even encourage others to use. And, and to that point, going into the meeting today at Downing Street, uh, Rishi Sunak was asked if he was going to raise the issue of um, cluster munitions. And afterwards, his press spokesman said yes. During the 40-minute or so conversation, it did come up. And the prime minister kept good to his part of the convention. This is what the spokesman said, um, to discourage the use of cluster munitions. However, that said, um, he, the spokesman also went on to say that the UK understands, or Rishi Sunak understands, the difficult position and the difficult decision that it was uh, for, for President Biden. I think when it comes to Ukraine and speed of it becoming a member of NATO, um, there is more alignment there. Uh, President Biden cautious. The UK has been pretty forward-leaning on supporting uh, Ukraine, the first to sort of lead the way with tanks, the first to lead the way with uh, training Air Force pilots on F-16s. Uh, they've taken many steps like that. But I think when it comes to what the next step is, there seems to be a better alignment, which is um, providing a concrete plan of military support and economic support that lead to security guarantees going forward. Uh, it's a little bit like what is in place now, but, but a stronger formula to it. And I think there's a sense from the Ukrainians, despite what President Zelensky said, his foreign minister today has said, OK, um, we think NATO is giving us something of a shortcut, making a reference to the April 2008 NATO summit in Bucharest, where the decision was that Ukraine and Georgia would have to follow the MAP, a, a process of alignment with NATO. Um, Ukraine understands that it's not going to have to go through that process. But the issue, of course, is that Ukraine still needs to reform its institutions and have a st stronger democratic civilian control over the military to align itself with NATO military structures, never mind the military components that go towards fighting a war. And despite the sort of uh, differences, especially when it comes to cluster munitions, as you just laid out, the special relationship between the two countries, of course, Nick, remains very, very strong. Just in terms of the relationship between these two men, how does the relationship between Biden and Rishi Sunak differ from the relationship that Biden may have had with uh, Boris Johnson? I think, you know, for many of Boris Johnson's interlocutors at leadership level around the world, and in particular the United States, he had begun to be seen as somebody who wasn't particularly reliable, and that created difficulties. Uh, we've seen how President Biden has disappointed the way that the UK handled Brexit um, in Northern Ireland. That's still an issue for President Biden, and that was very much Boris Johnson's doing. So I think with Rishi Sunak, it's seen as the UK has a more consistent, reliable uh, political leadership. But let's not forget, you know, when the UK was uh, as a member of the European Union, it had a greater role for the United States as being a voice for the United States inside the European Union. That's gone. Uh, President Obama was sort of putting more uh, emphasis uh, perhaps on Germany and France than he was uh, on, the, on the UK. Does this reset with Rishi Sunak? I don't think a reset is perhaps the right way to look at it, but it puts it on a firmer footing. And this is the sixth meeting that the pair have had in six months. So that is significant in that way in of itself.
Right, Nick Robertson, live for us there. Thank you so much. In Russia, the Kremlin saying that Wagner chief Evgeny Prigozhin met with Russian President Vladimir Putin only days after his short-lived mutiny. Claire Sebastian joins us live now. Claire, uh, this is a head-scratcher, somewhat surprising. Do we have any color in terms of what the two men discussed, what came out of the meeting? Yes, and we know from the Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov that the meeting uh, was on June 29th, so that is really about five days after that rebellion. Eleven days ago now, they were confirming a report that was published uh, in a French news outlet, perhaps explaining why they waited 11 days uh, to come out with this information. But he says that they they met for around three hours. It involved uh, 35 commanders. We don't know if they are commanders from the Russian MOD or just from Wagner. The Russian media seems to be suggesting that it's just Wagner. The Kremlin wouldn't comment uh, on a question as to whether any MOD representatives, Ministry of Defense representatives, were involved uh, in this meeting. Uh, but Putin appears to have given his assessment of the so-called special military operation of the events uh, of June 24th. I think, look, clearly this flips on its head the deal that we thought had resolved that armed rebellion. Prigozhin would go to uh, Belarus. Wagner fighters would have the choice to join the Russian army or themselves go to Belarus. No, it seems uh, that Prigozhin turned up back in Russia. Uh, Certainly that is what the Belarusian leader uh, said last week. But obviously major questions arise from this. Why would Putin host the man who had just launched an armed rebellion, really the only serious threat to his power in the 23 years that he's been uh, at the top uh, of the Russian authorities. This rebellion, of course, also killed almost a dozen Russian servicemen. Why would he host him? Why would he host him? And then the following week, uh, have police raid his office uh, and, uh, and his residence in St. Petersburg, publishing somewhat humiliating photos of wigs and gold uh, and guns and things like that. I think you can possibly glean a few things for this. One is that perhaps the Kremlin is trying to regain control uh, over Wagner in this meeting. Uh, uh, Peskov, the uh, Kremlin spokesman, as he described it, said that the commanders reaffirmed their commitment to to Putin, to the commander-in-chief. So that is one thing, the Kremlin trying to regain control here. Secondly, you know, it could signal that there is perhaps a continued role for Wagner to play in the war in Ukraine, even though there had been suggestions that that role uh, might be over. The commanders, according to the Kremlin, suggested that they wanted to continue to fight for the motherland. That is, of course, the critical question for Ukraine. The other big question, though, of course, is that we still don't actually know where Yevgeny Prigozhin is. If this meeting was on June 29th, we don't know where he went after that. Uh, we don't, haven't seen any actual videos or photos of him since he left the Russian region uh, of Rostov just after uh, that armed rebellion, though it does seem that if this latest revelation is true, he is emerging from this, uh, this incident stronger than perhaps we had initially thought. Still so many questions. Uh, Claire Sebastian, live for us. Thank you. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says her two days of meetings in China will help pave the way for more stable relations between the economic superpowers. Yellen wrapping up her visit to Beijing over the weekend. The talks could pave the way for a meeting between Presidents Biden and Xi later on this year. Uh, Here's our Chrissy Lustau with more. 
The U.S. and China are still rivals, but at least they're talking. After 10 hours of meetings across two days in Beijing, U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said she expects more regular communication between the U.S. and China. She added that the world is big enough for both to thrive. In Beijing, Yellen said that she had direct and productive talks with China's economic leadership, including Premier Li Qiang and Peng Gongsheng, the new party chief of China's central bank. She said the U.S. and China were on steadier footing despite significant disagreements. Here is Yellen at a press conference at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing on Sunday. But President Biden and I do not see the relationship between the U.S. and China through the frame of great power conflict. We believe that the world is big enough for both of our countries to thrive. Within hours of that statement, President Biden had more pointed comments to make about Chinese leader Xi Jinping in an interview with CNN's Fareed Zakaria. Do you think he wants to replace, he wants China to replace the United States as the leading power, the defining power? Oh, yeah, I think he does. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm confident he wants to have the largest economy in the world and have us, uh, the largest military capacity in the world. Yellen's trip marked the second visit by U.S. cabinet official to Beijing in recent weeks as U.S. seeks to stabilize the rocky relationship. Tensions have flared over trade, targeted sanctions, and access to technology like semiconductors. The U.S. has curbed China's ability to acquire advanced microchips, fearing that they could have military applications. Yellen reiterated that the U.S. is not seeking to decouple from China, which would be, quote, disastrous and destabilizing. But she added that the U.S. would continue to protect its national security interests. Chinese state media described the talks as productive and said that overstretching of national security does no good to normal economic and trade relations. Now, the diplomatic push comes ahead of an expected visit by U.S. climate envoy John Kerry to restart global warming talks and a possible meeting between Biden and President Xi at the G20 in New Delhi or at APEC in San Francisco in November. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Meantime, a horrific knife attack in southern China. A man allegedly killed six people outside a kindergarten. State media reports three children are among the dead uh, here. Anna Corrin joins us live now. So, Anna, this is not the first time we've seen this sort of incident uh, in China. But just walk us through whether or not we know exactly what the motive was here. Yeah, it's absolutely disturbing what took place early this morning in in China, Zane. We understand a man fatally stabbed six people with a knife outside a kindergarten in southern Guangdong province. Now, according to state media, the victims were three children, two parents and one teacher. One person was wounded. We don't have the ages of any of those victims. Now, CNN has blurred the images that you're seeing of lifeless bodies lying on the road. Emergency crews were quick to act, but unable to save the victims. They all perished at the scene. Uh, Police arrested a 25-year-old man from Lianjian County. He's from the same place where the kindergarten is located. Now, he's been taken into police custody and an investigation is underway. Uh, Authorities, Zane, have released very few details about the fatal stabbings other than to say that this attack was intentional. Now, guns in China are strictly controlled and out of reach for most people, but knives have become common and an accessible weapon. In recent years, there have been a spate of mass stabbings at schools targeting 
children across China. Let me go through some of them for you. In August of last year, three people were stabbed to death and six wounded at a kindergarten in China's southern Jiangxi province. Back in April 2021, two children were killed and 16 wounded in a stabbing attack at another kindergarten in southwestern Guangxi. And then back in June 2020, 37 children and two adults were wounded in a knife attack at an elementary school in southern China. Zane, you know, China has very low rates of violent crime compared to the United States, compared to the West. But these horrific knife attacks are often targeting, you know, the youngest of victims, young children at kindergartens are incredibly disturbing. Absolutely. Anna Corrin, live for us there. Thank you so much. All right. Still to come, strengthening the so-called special relationship between Britain and the United States. Now, President Biden's trip to Britain will be read around the world. Plus, prime The energy drink founded by YouTube stars is in the spotlight over its caffeine content. We'll explain all the controversy later on uh, in the show. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. All right, as you've heard, it's certainly been a busy day for President Biden, who's wrapping up his trip to the UK. Right now, he is in Windsor meeting the king for the first time since Charles's coronation. Earlier in London, the president met with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak to discuss Ukraine and NATO. Speaking in the Downing Street Garden, Mr. Biden described his relationship with the UK as rock solid. He's now preparing to travel onwards uh, to the NATO summit in Lithuania, Max. Foster is joining us live now from uh, Windsor Castle uh, for us. So, uh, Max, just in terms of this meeting between King Charles and and President Biden, the king obviously is not supposed to weigh in on current affairs or current events. Um, They are going to be talking about climate change. How much will Ukraine feature as a topic of conversation, even just sort of superficially? Well, I think it will could possibly get in there on the basis that uh, King Charles has been really outspoken about Ukraine and the unprovoked attack on Ukraine that he describes uh, Russia inflicted on that country. Uh, so on that level, perhaps it may discuss you know, what might be done about that. But I don't think it will go into any more detail than that because there are fundamental differences between the UK and US governments on that that have emerged only in recent weeks. Cluster bombs, for example, which is something that Britain doesn't support. That's what the US is supplying to Ukraine. Also, uh, uh, Britain... Uh, nominated uh, their defence minister for the head of NATO and uh, 
President Biden reportedly blocked that. Also, Britain would like to see Ukraine becoming part of NATO much more quickly than the US would. So there are tensions there. I don't think King Charles is going to delve into that because that's a matter for the Prime Minister to uh, discuss possibly this morning. Uh, the climate meeting, though, is interesting, though, because um, you can imagine in the past the Queen would have similar meetings like this, Queen Elizabeth II, the late Queen, and they would go retire into the castle and they would have a tea. Uh, they, uh, King Charles also did that with uh, President Biden, but then they went on to this meeting, which is a climate meeting, chief execs of American and British banks uh, discussing how to help with climate change on developing countries. And that's really unusual. And for many people, climate has become a political issue. But for Charles, he's, he's, he's showing his continued interest in that topic, having been a pioneer on it. So I think this is interesting in the sense that um, it's, it's the way Charles is carrying out a new type of monarchy as distinct from his, his mother. And, and speaking of his mother, President Biden met Queen Elizabeth, uh, I believe around two years ago, um, uh, 2021, on the back of a G7 summit. Just explain to us how that meeting between Biden and Queen Elizabeth is going to be different, or was different rather, from uh, this meeting taking place right now with King Charles. Well, you know, there's a different tone. I think that the Queen in many ways transcended monarchy because she was the longest serving head of state in the world and so many other heads of state uh, would look at her, would, would love to have that picture with the Queen because she was this historic figure that defined and punctuated so many different phases of history. So that's what she represented. And I think that one of the reasons she kept her discussions confidential was to allow other heads of state to ask her really frank and honest questions, which everyone knew wouldn't leak. I think it's different with Charles. He's been around for a long time as well. The first serving president that he met was uh, uh, President Eisenhower in 1959. So he does have that experience, but not such a towering legacy. He's very early in his monarchy. So he's handling things slightly differently. He is more of a campaigning monarch. So he's just doing it slightly different from the Queen. And you know, there's some controversy to that. But I think people are also uh, like the authenticity that comes with that as well. He's more honest about his feelings. The Queen never, ever gave us any suggestion of her feelings. Uh, so we didn't know her as well. But of course, that made her, Zane, a more universal figure, didn't it? That less people Absolutely. objected to her views because she just didn't ever express them. Yeah, complete and total vault. Um, Max Foster, live for us there. Thank you so much. And I'll be much more on the presidential visit later on this hour. I want to bring in Tina Fordham, a geopolitical strategist and the founder of Fordham Global Foresight. Tina, thank you so much for being with us. I want to talk a bit more about President Biden's meeting with Rishi Sunak. I mean, obviously, there is a strong, as President Biden put it, rock solid special relationship between these two countries. But there are some minor points of contention. I shouldn't say minor, really. Some of them are quite significant, especially when it comes to uh, cluster bombs. Nothing really expected to rock the boat between Rishi Sunak um, and President Biden. But just explain to us how significant this meeting is and how high the stakes are in terms of this meeting between these two men. Thank you very much. Um, it's, it's it's a meeting which probably has a greater significance here in the UK for Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and, and his government. Um, I think for the US, n nobody would put it this way, but it really is a, a, a an important stopover on the road to Vilnius for the NATO summit. Meeting with King, King Charles now that he has uh, been um, installed and, and seeing Rishi Sunak to kind of shore up uh, relations um, is important. And the most uh, the crucial aspect is going to be 
solidifying the position uh, on Ukraine in NATO. We, of course, have had a pretty significant new wrinkle. You might have seen President Erdogan's statement um, just recently uh, that will have slightly put the, the cat amongst the chickens. Yeah, and just to sort of lay that out for our viewers, uh, what Tina's talking about is that President Erdogan is saying that, listen, if you want me to allow Sweden to join NATO, you have to also allow Turkey to join the EU in exchange. I mean, what do you make of that kind of um, strategizing, uh, that chess move by President Erdogan? Strategizing is, you're you're being very diplomatic there. It is classic (laughs) uh, Tayyip Erdogan. It is classic Erdogan. bearing in mind that the Turkish president um, has just been re-elected after a a pretty difficult campaign. Uh, In the run-up to the elections, Turkey had uh, withheld its support for Sweden's NATO uh, bid, uh, allowing Finland in. Um, Turkey is very adept at um, furthering its... uh, national interests and goals via these kinds of negotiations. Uh, But this is really out of left field. And of course, um, these uh, invitations are hardly interchangeable. The members of NATO are not the same as the members of the European Union. Uh, But he has managed to kind of hijack the agenda in advance of, of Vilnius when all eyes have been coordinating the language around the statement for uh, some type of clear path for Ukraine. And speaking of um, a clear path for Ukraine, I mean, obviously it's it's, it's impossible for uh, Ukraine to really join NATO while the war is still going on for obvious reasons. But after the war ends, is their membership path to joining NATO Uh, contingent or should it be contingent on anything other than the war ending? I guess what I'm asking is, what does a fast track membership uh, for Ukraine to join NATO actually look like here? And how much support is there within NATO for that fast track for Ukraine? Well, this is a really important question, and it's going to be the subject of, of very intense negotiations, because I think that the NATO member states are united in the notion that Ukraine needs to be given a perspective. Um, and there are a couple a couple of holdouts on the best way of doing that. Now, what's interesting about President Biden's most recent remarks um, on uh, the Fareed Zakaria's show was uh, that he it puts him in the camp with Germany, um, which has been possibly among the most uh, cautious, shall we say, in offering uh, Ukraine a, a clear path to membership. the I think it's safe to say the majority of the NATO member states, certainly the, the Baltic states uh, and Poland and uh, a few others um, have come to the view that a clear path is necessary for, for not only for Ukraine um, to maintain what remains of its territorial integrity, but to prevent the risk of of further Russian interventions elsewhere, which is very live and something that the Baltic states and Poland had been warning about for many years, frankly, falling on deaf ears. So once the war is over, I mean, what sort of other, if there is no sort of fast track, if if Ukraine has to go the slow route, for example, what are the other 
preconditions that they still need to fulfill. I mean, President Biden touched on this idea of corruption. There are several others, though. What has Ukraine already fulfilled and addressed and what is what is still left on the table? Listen, I, I think we need to appreciate that many of these uh, criteria are fundamentally political in nature. We also saw this, although I just said it's a different process with, with EU enlargement. Um, Ukraine has shown that it's got the, the military prowess, the, uh, the, you know, the commitment um, to be uh, a contributing member. That's what it's campaigning on. There is debate, for example, on whether the war needs to be over. Um, and uh, also the point on territorial integrity. Some have pointed out that uh, West Germany at the time was able to join NATO, even though it was divided from East Germany. Um, so there, there, uh, there is going to be a lot to discuss, and they're going to have to find this, this balance between um, being encouraging and supportive of Ukraine without, um, you know, giving a, a too fast of a signal because they want to um, encourage reforms. And uh, Ukraine has plenty of reforms to make, but that's what makes the NATO accession path different from EU accession, which I would expect to take a much longer time. And, you know, coming back to Turkey, Turkey has been a candidate for EU accession for an exceptionally long time. Progress slowed to a halt. Um, Erdogan's taking the chance to remind everyone and also trying to draw a bit of a contrast between uh, between Turkey and Ukraine in that respect. Right, Tina Fordham, live for us there, founder of Fordham Global Foresight. Thank you so much. Appreciate you having you on the show. All right, so to come here on First Move, Ukraine seemingly on a fast track at membership to NATO. Membership to NATO, possibly what the government is looking for ahead of a meeting in Lithuania. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on Wall Street. Uh, let's take a look and see how things are faring right now. I mean, it's mostly flat, open, slightly higher, but mostly flat, open. After last week's pullback, investors are waiting a key read on U.S. consumer inflation on Wednesday and the start of U.S. earnings season on Friday. One of last week's big Wall Street winners, Rivian Motors, is slightly higher in early trading shares of the Electric vehicle company rose more than 40% last week on strong delivery uh, numbers. Meta, also beginning the week higher as well. Some 100 million users have now signed up for the company's Threads social media app. Meta launched the app less than uh, a week ago in a bid to take on rival Twitter. One of Europe's biggest arms firms wants to produce more weapons for Ukraine and plans to make them inside Ukraine itself. Germany's Rheinmetall says it will open a plant uh, to build tanks in Ukraine within the next 12 weeks. It also plans to train Ukrainians to maintain the tanks and other armored vehicles uh, made there as well. Fred Blyken sat down with Rheinmetall CEO about its plans. He joins us live now from Berlin. So the CEO basically saying this is all part of a concrete plan to help Ukrainians help themselves. 
Yeah, that's exactly what he's saying. Uh, one of the things that he was saying was that they plan to open a workshop and then uh, later possibly also a factory to help the Ukrainians uh, themselves to manufacture uh, arms. But one of the things that he also said, Zane, in the short term, which is a, a big need, which also the international community has said as well, is that the Ukrainians need more ammunition. One of the reasons apparently why they're having uh, some trouble advancing right now in the south and the east of Ukraine is a lack of ammunition. And that's also one area where the CEO of Rheinmetall told me that his company is ready to vastly expand their production. Let's listen in. I think it's very important that we help the Ukrainians that they are independent. They have to help themselves. If they always have to wait that Europeans or Americans uh, help them over the next 10 or 20 years, I think uh, that's not possible. So what we have to do is we have to give them technology on NATO basis. And uh, over the next two to three months, we will open the first workshop uh, uh, in Ukraine, uh, in the western part uh, of Ukraine, and then they can maintenance their vehicles by themselves. So workshop means maintaining western vehicles. What sort of production do you think could be possible? Thinking of tanks, for instance, armored personnel carriers and the like. The first idea is really APCs. On the APC side, as you know, we have Fox technology, 100% under control. And this 6x6 vehicle would be a very good vehicle for the Ukrainian army. So at the moment, uh, 10 martyrs per, per uh, month uh, we deliver, we are able to deliver. And we deliver a lot of uh, Leopard to a, a force. Uh, over the, the 12 months, we will deliver 250 vehicles, which is a lot. But um, there is more need for, for ammunition because uh, the, the lack of ammunition is much more important than the lack of vehicles. The ammunition is a huge deficit right now <clears throat> for the Ukrainians. They talk about it a lot. Um, where can you help? We help them. And uh, the capacity we have is, is huge. Rheinmetall has the biggest capacity for tank ammunition. We produce this year 150,000 rounds. We are able to produce 240,000 rounds. By far the biggest capacity worldwide. We will deliver and we deliver also now uh, the Ukrainian forces. The second point is, and this is the, the biggest need, artillery ammunition. On the artillery ammunition, uh, we produce 100,000 of rounds and the capacity of next year will be 600,000. So if you see that the need is, is 1 million, Rheinmetall could deliver, if we deliver only the Ukrainian, 60% of the need. So you can, you can, can you ramp that up quickly also? We ramped it up. We invested. You've already been in that process. Because we know that for artillery ammunition, or generally for ammunition, gunpowder has to go through a certain process before it can be turned into shells. We are the biggest producer of gunpowders, mm -hmm. and this is also a point. If we are able to produce 600,000 rounds, I think that's a huge help for the Ukrainians. What are some of the things where you've maybe found weak points, stuff that you might need to change, stuff that might need to be improved? Are there lessons learned? The Ukrainians now need land system stuff. They need ammunition, conventional ammunition, because all, all people and all governments thought it is impossible to have a conventional war. We have a conventional war in Europe. The second point is if you have boots on ground, you need highly protected um, equipment. Highly protected means you have, must be protected against UAVs, against drones. So on the tank side, it's quality. On the ammunition, this is a very important thing also, is the quantity. Do you think that European nations, because you were talking about things like ammunition stocks, um, generally militaries in Europe, do you think that they've understood how much the security in Europe has changed? Are they prepared in case something like this escalates, in case 
they are attacked. At the moment, they are not. Uh, they have to invest more, and we need some years uh, to fill the stocks. Are you surprised at how far the German government has come in such a short period of time? The decision of the chancellor is, uh, was a game changer, and it was also a game changer, and the new minister of defense is a game changer in that. He's pushing through with this organization now, these contracts, and uh, we negotiate billions and billions at the moment. Uh, usually, two years ago, we need two or three years to do that. Now we need maybe four to five months. What about your uh, business in America? I know that you are one of two companies left bidding for the new infantry fighting vehicle for the US military. How confident are you that you can win? We won the prototype contract. It's a good contract. It's $800 million. Uh, but at the end of the day, both companies want uh, to win uh, the, big, uh, the big deal. And we will see uh, what happens. We will, we will fight uh, hard and we try to give our customer the best solution. It looks as though we're having some technical difficulties there, as you could see. Um, it was Fred uh, Pleitgen there for us. All right, stay with First Move. We'll be back right after this. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Ahead of the critical NATO summit in Lithuania, Ukraine's foreign minister said that NATO has agreed to let the country bypass a detailed formal process in its application to join the alliance. The membership action plan is a NATO program of assistance and practical support for countries that wish to join the alliance. It can be a lengthy process. On the eve of the Vilnius summit, the head of President Zelensky's office said, quote, we work intensively. The position of Ukraine will be substantive. Uh, there is a lot of communication with allies. We're waiting for good news. But in an exclusive interview over the weekend uh, with CNN, President Joe Biden said that Russia's war must end before NATO can consider membership for Ukraine. Joining me live now is Olga Stefanishnia. She's the Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine. Olga, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, the key issue here is really about timeline. I mean, there are several allies who say, look, it is very difficult. Olga, do I still have you there? I think your computer may have fallen. Okay, do I still have you? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the issue is about timeline. There are several key allies who say, look, it is very difficult for Ukraine to join NATO while the war is going on to avoid NATO being dragged into a war with Russia. Um, just in terms of what happens as soon as the war is over, what are your expectations here? Do you anticipate that once the war is over in terms of the likely outcome, do you anticipate that there will be a fast track path for Ukraine being able to join uh, NATO? Uh, well, thank you for this uh, question. Indeed, it's very clear to Ukraine that membership in Ukrainian case, it's a process and it requires to identify the modalities and the circumstances under which it could get a fully fledged process. But uh, for us, it's really important that we are not hesitating and see no hesitation from allies in terms 
the political commitment and uh, commitment through invitation of Ukraine to join NATO. And uh, we have already shown our capability to reform and transform ourselves in times of the full-scale war. So, which means that while uh, the war is raging on and security conditions does not allow to have the decision of formal joining the NATO, we can transform ourselves, making us fully capable with the alliance. So while it would be extremely important at this particular moment to have a clear political signal for Ukraine joining NATO. And it's interesting because, you know, President Biden um, over during an interview over the weekend has basically said, look, you know, it's obviously a nice idea for Ukraine to be able to join NATO as soon as the war ends. But he sort of touched on this idea of there still being um, preconditions and requirements that needs to be met. Obviously, I know that Ukraine has worked on many of these requirements, especially corruption. But corruption was something that President Biden touched upon. I mean, so, so what are your thoughts on that? The fact that it might not be as simple as as soon as the war is over, there is a clear fast track path uh, for Ukraine, that it might take a little bit more than the war uh, to be over. Just walk us through your thoughts on that. Uh, well, uh, the whole story of Ukraine's compatibility with the alliance does not start in the Vilnius. So we have a 10 year and almost a decade of process related to transformation uh, based on the NATO rules and standards. So we have a really good background and it's already seen by the results on the battlefield. At the same time, we are ongoing through the process of joining the European Union, which is formalized and which has started after the political commitment given to Ukraine last year with the candidate statue. So we have been under very serious and comprehensive reforms related to judiciary, rule of law, anti-corruption. There are things to be done, but many things are already uh, behind our shoulders. So um, it's uh, it's only showing that we are in the process and the commitment is there and the capacity to deliver is there despite the very fact the war is, uh, is uh, raging on. Um, so we have heard the signal from President Biden loud and clear and uh, we hope that over Vilnius summit, which will launch the NATO-Ukraine Council meeting, there will be a discussion on the shape and the format of the political commitment which could be taken, given that the discussion, even at the level of the leaders, are still going on between our presidents, the, the leaders, allied countries at the level of us ministers, and the final uh, vision and the final commitment is not yet there agreed, although the meeting will start tomorrow already. Yeah, I, I want to talk about commitments because, you know, obviously um, there have been sort of vague promises about Ukraine potentially one day at some point in the future being able to join NATO dating back at least 15 years you know, since NATO summits in, in 2008. So obviously things have changed over the past year and a half and Ukraine needs uh, real concrete pledges, a true um, commitment here. What is Ukraine, what is Zelensky looking to get out of this summit that, that starts tomorrow? Uh, well, first and foremost, I can say that we are already in the middle of a serious transformation of thinking as regards your Atlantic perspective, even though the summit has not yet taken place. Uh, because the toughness of discussions and the very, let's say, strong messaging from U.S. leadership, from uh, from Germany, 
only shows that the dialogue is really serious and that NATO is not committed to give another set of empty promises or just promises that it was 15 years ago. So for us, it's crucial that we hear not only the uh, reference to the open door policy, but the established NATO Ukraine Council would identify the modalities related to Ukraine's future membership to EU. But the, the political commitment, the invitation will take place uh, when the security conditions or any other conditions allow is also essential to us for uh, having it in this particular moment when the uh, counteroffensive measures started. Uh, to hear the signal of unity and commitment and also we understand that the long-lasting, uh, let's say, cautiousness as regards Russia does not have place at this particular moment of history because we have seen that less than uh, in 24 hours the whole uh, the whole administrative capacity and resilience of the governments could be undermined by, by a small uh, group of, of the military uh, organization. And basically now they result with the sitting in Kremlin and negotiating with Putin, a part of many citizens of Russia who have been captured and detained only for Facebook posts. So uh, it is uh, the best moment to show the resolute support and the political commitment and to um, give a clear contrast that no Russia is on the table and no Russia is part of the dialogue when it comes to the security in Europe and security in Europe is uh, only possible with Ukraine being part of the architecture. And uh, I think that it is vital that it's not only the voice of Ukraine, it's the voice of all uh, Bucharest 9 and uh, Eastern flank of NATO, who's been clear and standing on its position that security in Europe and secure Eastern flank will not be completed without Ukraine being part of the architecture. All right, Deputy Prime Minister Olga Stefanishnia, thank you so much for being with mm -hmm. us. We appreciate it. All right, coming up, okay. Prime problem. An energy drink loaded with caffeine and promoted by YouTube influencers is causing uh, concern on Capitol Hill. A prime primer. <laughs> Just ahead. Welcome back to First Move. Is the popular energy drink prime ready for prime time. A U.S. senator is calling for a high-level U.S. government probe into the drink, saying prime contains so much caffeine that it puts Red Bull to shame. He also says it poses a potential health risk uh, to teenagers. CNN has reached out to prime for a response and has not yet heard back. CNN's Vanessa Yakevich joins us live now. I mean, kids love this stuff. I have my niece and nephew is just in London, and it's gone uh, viral over there as well. I mean, just, just walk us through why people have gravitated towards this drink and, and what the risks are here with the, the caffeine content. Yeah, it is incredibly popular among teens and young people. This blew up on social media. On TikTok alone, uh, Prime has 3.4 million followers, 42 million likes. It's also been really advertised by its co-founder, Logan Paul, who has millions of followers himself. Now, there's the uh, Prime Hydration, which is the sports drink, and then there's Prime Energy. And that's the concern from Senator Schumer, who's concerned about the high levels of caffeine, 200 milligrams per can. Uh, there's a big market, though, in energy drinks. In 2022, $58 billion in sales globally. 2023, that number is looking closer to $62 billion in sales. And in about four years, projected in 2027, 
$83 billion. And another way that this brand is getting their name out there is they're sponsoring huge sports teams like the L.A. Dodgers, Arsenal, uh, the soccer club team Barcelona. And these are sports teams that also work with very big brands like Adidas and Nike and Coca-Cola. So Prime clearly trying to get themselves into a position of popular uh, nature. They clearly are doing really well in sales. They're sold out everywhere. You mentioned your your nieces and nephews. I mean, they can't find it. This is so popular, especially among young people. They're asking their parents to get it for them. But it's important to note the difference between the sports drink and the energy drink, which is the issue that a lot of uh, legislators are are having. They want the FDA to make sure that people know the difference, Zane. Right. Prime hydration versus the energy drink. Vanessa Jokovic, have to leave it there. Thank you so much. That's it for the show. Connect the World is up next. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.